Welcome to Senior Straight Talk with Phyllis Heyman, a collaborative podcast with Pass It On Network. This program is brought to you by all of Community Services. Seniors deserve to have a fulfilling life with dignity and respect, but as we transition into our elderhood years, this doesn't always happen. Join us today as we discuss some of the most important issues that seniors face and provide much-needed answers to your questions. Now, here is Phyllis Amon. Welcome to Senior Straight Talk, presenting informative conversations for the senior years of our lives. I'm Phyllis Amon, your host. The show, which began in September of 2019, was formerly known as Voices for Elder Care Advocacy, and the library of all of the episodes can be found on the Voice America Empowerment Channel under the name Senior Straight Talk. It can also be downloaded on popular podcast platforms. The show is now also syndicated on the Voice America Influencers Channel. Please remember to like, click, and share our episodes. I have two courses which you can find on my website at www.phyllisaymanassociates.com. For those listeners who are in what I call SOS mode, stressed, overwhelmed, and stretched, Resilience Toolbox Secrets will help you capture the three R's, recharge, reset, and recommit. And family members considering taking on the role of caregiver or those just beginning the caregiver journey can find valuable information in my latest course, Our Caregiving Guide for Caregivers, The Basics. Please look out for my new course, which is scheduled to be coming out very soon, Coming Alive with Music and Communicating Effectively with Persons Having Dementia, who I'm proud to say I created with Dan Cohen, founder of Music and Memory and Right to Music. My latest book, Dignity and Respect, Are Our Aging Parents Getting What They Deserve, is available on Amazon in both paperback and ebook formats. The book addresses critical information about how we care for and treat our elder citizens in our families, our communities, in nursing homes, and assisted living facilities. I hope you'll purchase a copy and encourage your friends and colleagues to do the same. And I anticipate an audio version of the book in the near future. Senior Stray Talk is proud of the collaborative partnership with the Pass It On Network, a global peer learning network for positive aging advocates and a member of the United Nations Open-Ended Working Group on Aging. Senior Stray Talk and Pass It On Network will continue bringing our listeners informative conversations for the senior years of our lives. I'm glad to welcome Olive Community Services, a nonprofit organization in Fullerton, California as a sponsor. Olive Community Services is dedicated to providing culturally appropriate services to the diverse senior population. And I'm grateful to Olive President Rubina Chaudhry and the entire team at Olive Community Services for their continued support. Before we begin, I have to thank Peter DeGear of DeGear Therapy Services, who is a colleague and consultant specializing in rehabilitation therapy services in nursing homes. And now I'm thrilled to interview our introduce our guest for today, Mayreed Painter. Mayreed is the Connecticut State Long-Term Care Ombudsman, co-chair of the Coalition for Elder Justice in Connecticut, co-chair of the Connecticut Medicaid Long-Term, Serv- Long-Term Services and Supports Rebalancing Initiative Steering Committee, and first VP of the National Association of State Ombudsmen. She's a graduate of the University of St. Joseph in West Hartford, Connecticut. And prior to becoming a state ombudsman, May Reed was a social worker in long-term care facilities, child protective services social worker, 
regional ombudsman and social worker at the Department of Social Services. While at the Department of Social Services, she became a program manager with the Community Options Strategic Planning Unit. And in that position, May Reed was responsible for overseeing several initiatives, including nursing home diversification grants, right size rebalancing, and the informed choice process for all nursing home closures, as well as two pilot nursing homes. May Reed views one of the biggest successes as furthering the informed choice process in Connecticut nursing homes and advocating for person-centered care. And there's a lot more to say about May Reed, but I'm going to take this time to introduce her, to, in, to welcome her, and then she can go on and tell us about the rest. Uh, hi, May Reed, how are you today? Good morning, very well, thank you. Sorry for all of those um, all of those blunders. I think I'm overwhelmed by um, finally getting the opportunity to interview you. Um, we, we met, I think, a few years ago. Uh, we had a conversation and, um, you know, it's finally come to fruition that I could, that I could interview you. And actually, um, it was um, Nora Duncan from Connecticut AARP uh, who I interviewed several weeks ago, we had a conversation. She said, oh, did you get back in touch with May Reed? I said, oh, I have to do that. So I'm so thrilled to have you here today. Thank you. And I'm, I'm pleased to be here for this conversation. Um, I'm just, I'm always so impressed and um, engaged by the topics that you discuss and how they're addressed. So I'm, I'm happy to be here and happy to um, try to give out some information this morning. I will say, I'm just going to put it out there. So for my name, it's hard, but Marade like a parade with an M. Oh, excuse me. You know, okay. I, I told you that earlier. asked you that before, especially as a speech pathologist. I was like, oh, don't forget to ask her how to pronounce her name. Nope, everybody does it. So like a parade, but with an M, Marade. Oh, my goodness gracious. I really am embarrassed to tell you nope. the truth. That's fine. No problem. But um, as I tell people, when they, they forget my name or they ask me how to pronounce my name, I say, listen, as long as I can remember it, we're okay. <laughs> when I can no longer remember it, then it, it's more of an issue. <laughs> Absolutely. So, accept my apologies. So yeah. do you want to uh, tell the listeners a little bit about informed choice, what that really means? Because people may not know what, what that really is all about. Sure, sure. So you know, we're talking mainly about long-term care here. And when we talk about long-term care, we're talking about nursing homes, residential care homes, and assisted living communities in Connecticut. In every state, it's a little bit different, but that's what long-term care in Connecticut means. And for individuals here, um, their first interaction with long-term care normally comes after a hospital stay, traditionally. Some people do make the choice to go in directly from home, but most people have a hospital stay for an unexpected illness or condition um, and then need some sort of support after that period of time and go into the nursing home. In Connecticut, we see that we're one of the states with the highest instances where people receive their first um, need for Medicaid in the nursing home. And we started to ask why, why is that? And that's because many individuals are then counseled, right? And they stay long-term and they go from a short-term resident to long-term. And in that process, they're getting their information from the nursing home and they and their families are making this decision. The challenge that I have related to that 
um, and many individuals that we partner with is that they're not really informed of all of their choices and exactly what their insurance covers. And you and I know we would never, right? We would never make a decision about our health without calling our insurance company and saying, what are all of my options? Right. Expect individuals who are older adults or individuals who need the support of Medicaid to accept what is told of them, their options are from a lay person or someone working in the nursing home and to just take that advice and, and run with it. We know now in Connecticut, we have more than 50% of individuals receiving their long-term services and supports, right? So they're at long-term level of care. They have chosen to receive those supports in the community. Um, we know that people's funds, right? Their private funds go four times longer in the community than they do in a nursing home. So they can pay privately four times longer in the community than a nursing home, directing their own care. And there's case management, but you have to know that. You have to know how to engage those things. Right. You have to have someone educating you in those ways. And so for years now, I've really been working towards the idea that before anyone is asked to make a decision, and it is a decision, and sometimes it's the right decision for the person to stay in long-term care. And I think there's an absolute need for long-term care and it's an appropriate choice for some people, but it shouldn't be the only choice and it shouldn't be the first choice. They should be educated on all of their rights, all of their options, and then allow them to make that informed choice as to where they're going to receive those long-term services and supports. Right. And now there is uh, an initiative, I think, with the new administration in Washington to really support the Money Follows the Person program, which I've been talking about on the podcast for a while, and the Money Follows the Person program would allow people to use those same funds to remain in their home and receive the support and services they need in the community that they can receive in the community in their, while they're at home. So that would either prevent them from moving into a nursing home or, or delay it. Correct. So for, for MFP, individuals um, who are currently in long-term care and on Medicaid or are close to being on Medicaid can make a referral. And Connecticut is, if not the only state, one of the only states that fully supported and invested in their MFP, and it has not stopped. So other states have paused their MFP or it had stopped and they're restarting. Connecticut's MFP program through the Community Options Unit under Don Lambert has moved forward this entire time. Um, and actually they had more discharges from nursing homes during COVID than I believe they had the year prior. So people were making that choice. What I would, I wanna make clear to people is MFP is the first 365 days out of a nursing home. So when you're in the nursing home and you choose to have an assessment, and I would encourage every person who goes into a nursing home to ask for a universal assessment that looks at all of your strengths, all of your abilities, and it tells you what options you might have under the state long-term care system. Maybe it's home care program for elders, but you might also qualify for community first choice. Right. You might also qualify for mental health, um, DEMAS, uh, the WISE waiver. There's other things. And so you have to look at each of the long-term care components how they would apply to your situation and what decisions you want to make. And then you, when you leave the nursing home, you come out under MFP 
It is a demonstration program. You would come out under MFP and then after 365 days, you move over to the waiver. And what's interesting, people say, oh my gosh, then I'm gonna have to change again. No, no, it's like paying something out of the savings account or paying it out of the checking account. The client never really notices, it's just who's paying that bill shift. And it's actually, as a taxpayer, it's important that we inform people about this and let that choice be made. For every person who transitions to the community, the state actually also benefits because we see funds come back to the state at a federal level to help support those people in the community. Right. So it's, it's good all around. Um, UConn also does third-party um, survey of how people are doing in quality of life. And we see that people report when they have control over their own destiny, remarkably, their quality of life um, scale improves. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think you, you said something that I find interesting. I'm not surprised, but I find it interesting and that is that there were more people leaving the nursing homes during, during COVID, which, you know, a lot of people didn't want to remain in nursing homes during COVID. And I think there will be more people who won't want to go to nursing homes as a result of COVID. So I have a little bit of, you know, my question is, and I'm glad to know that Connecticut really offered that and continued offering that. But do you think it's kind of... Um, counterintuitive for uh, nursing home owners to want to um, to want to have people avail themselves of that um, option. Yes. So there's challenges there, right? Because if you are telling people about informed choice and they're making the decision to go somewhere else, what does that due to your, the structure of your building and the stability of your building. Right. And so when we know that Connecticut, there was a Mercer, Mercer did a report, um, actually I've done two now in Connecticut that has showed that we are well, 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 well overbedded, way too many beds in nursing homes in Connecticut. Now with the impact of COVID and the horrific um, deaths that we've seen due to that, we have even more beds in the system. When you have too much supply and not enough demand that causes a lot of instability. So I think we are going to see that right size and rebalancing of the system over the next, I would even say 12 to 18 months. And it's going to be um, a painful change. There's gonna be a lot happening. We need to support people in this. We need to support the long-term care industry to make sure that they're able to have quality long-term care choices for people, including nursing homes. Right. Including um, residential care homes and assisted living and that those options are there, but how do we do that and support that? Um, I think when I've talked to managers and administrators in the past about their MFP referrals, one, there is something called section Q of the MDS, the minimum data set, Mm -hmm. which is required in all nursing homes on admission day seven, day 14, 21, and every 90 days after. I just want to interject. For people who don't know what the MDS is, that document uh, is the information on that document is translated to the state and that helps nursing homes get their funding. It's based on that document that uh, funds are released to the nursing home based on what the person needs, what their care needs are. It's it's an inclusive document. Yes. And it had historically just 
really been billed for Medicare. Connecticut is shifting to a a level of care, a level of need um, payment um, in nursing homes too. But on that, there's something called Section Q. And in Section Q, it says, would you like to be assessed for another level of care? It's supposed to be asked to every resident. It is often asked by to the family member or the social worker fills it out. Right. So we have to remind them that they are required to ask the resident that question every 90 days. Um, also, when talking to administrators, what I've said is I truly believe, and I've said this for years since I worked in community options, any nursing home that can engage individuals as part of their community and say, we will be here for you, whatever you need, when you need it. When you come for short term, we're going to ask you your goals. And if your goals are to return to your home, we're going to do everything to get you there. And they do it every time the person needs it. When the person needs maybe that long-term stay, when they have someone else they know that needs something, they're going to refer them to that home because their goals were honored. Their personal choices were honored. The nursing home needs to become a part of the system of care for that person, the community of care for that person, and their greater community. And at that point, they will have people that want to go, want to be there, and feel good about being there. You know, it's funny that you say that because I always say to nursing home administrators or people in the industry that, you know, good news travels fast, bad news travels faster. But if, you know, if you do the right thing, um, you know, more people will come. You know, if, if you're doing good, that word will get translated and you will get more people. You, you don't have to think about doing things in a kind of an underhanded way or, in, or not quite the right way in order to keep people there. You will get more people, just as you said, if you do the right thing, give them the choices that people know that they, they will be able to go back to their homes or their communities and receive the best care that they can. And in all likelihood, if they have another incident, they're more likely to go, want to go back to that, that environment, that nursing home. Absolutely. Think about any industry. Think about a restaurant, any customer right. service, right? Nursing homes, you have customers. Any customer service tells you if someone leaves feeling good, they'll want to return. They will, it'll be word of mouth. They'll recommend other people. We are also seeing long-term care communities that have home care. Now, I believe it should be offered in choice, but if you also have home care services or therapists that can follow individuals home, think about that idea and that system of care. Right. ability to follow someone and know historically where they were at and, and provide them with their supports wherever they are and meet their goals, and then you become a trusted ally in care. Right. You're meeting that person where they are. You're talking to them about their goals. You're supporting them and their family in what their abilities are, not just needs-based, what are your needs, but what are your highest level of ability, and how do we support your abilities to ensure that you are living your best quality of life. And that I think is the dream here in Connecticut that we are hoping to get to. We're moving in that direction. And again, long-term care will be a a piece of that. Maybe we need less beds. I'm also really concerned about um, for nursing home closures that if a nursing home closes, it's not in an area where it is the only nursing home. 
I want I would I would love to see small nursing homes scattered throughout our communities where people have them, they have access to them when they need them, and then they can get back to the level of care that best supports them. Um, only having long-term care communities in centralized areas makes people have to travel, their family can't visit as much. So Connecticut's done a good job, I think, whenever there's going to be a closure, we have a CON process, a certificate of need process that looks at that. Are there enough beds in this community to support the individuals in this community? And at times they have said, no, this nursing home can't close. We have to find someone to buy it. We oh. have to put a receiver in and really look at this because it would, negatively impact that community. Uh, I was just going to ask about that. So I'm glad you brought that up. We are one of the few states that has such a rigorous um, certificate of need program through the Department of Social Services. Uh, that's terrific. So we have a few minutes before we go to break. I don't know if people exactly know what the Ombudsman program is all about. Maybe you could explain that. You probably need uh, more than the time that we have left before we go to break. But that's okay, we'll carry the discussion over. I, I think it's very important for people to understand what an ombudsman program is, and um, also the Coalition for Elder Justice, and, and what role the ombudsman plays in nursing homes. Okay, well, and it's funny, most people don't know the word long-term care ombudsman until they need it, right? right. We had that. So the long-term care ombudsman program works to improve the quality of life and the quality of care for Connecticut citizens living in nursing homes, residential care homes, or assisted living communities. Um, we work on behalf of the resident. Uh, we take direction from the resident and we talk to them about any issues or concerns they might have in a confidential manner. We are not mandated reporters. We're, some of the only one, we're really the only ones that aren't mandated reporters. And that's to ensure that they have the ability to find out what their rights are in that setting. We investigate complaints brought forward on behalf of residents. So sometimes a family member calls us, a friend, and says they saw something, they witnessed something, the resident told them something. We go back and we ask that person, did this happen? Do you wanna talk about it? Do you want us to report it? If the resident says no, we don't report it. We give them tools, strategies, information and education to help support them in how they wanna deal with a situation. Um, so that's really the crux of what we do is a lot of training about rights. It's not always because of complaints that we're in a building. So if you see us, don't get worried. We do non-complaint visits, we do educational visits, we make recommendations. Um, so, and that's what the regional ombudsman do. I can talk about my role after we come back from break if that makes sense for you. Yeah, absolutely. I wanted to ask you one question because of my experience in nursing homes with ombudsmen. Do you think that ombudsmen are well received and appreciated by administrators of nursing homes? Oh, that's a good question. I think it depends, honestly. I see my team members' roles as partners in the residents directing their care. And so depending on how an administrator or administration in a building takes a resident partnering in their care would very much um, probably answer that question. And so we work to facilitate conversation to interpret what the home is saying and help the resident understand. Um, and sometimes we do have to have hard conversations about things we're seeing uh, and we approach it in a way we are not the regulatory agency. Right. However, um, 
we do sometimes report things to the regulatory agency if we have issues or concerns that arise that we see through an ombudsman complaint. But traditionally, we meet with administration, we address concerns, we try to facilitate change in nursing homes where we see a need. And I would say the majority of the time, it is fairly well received. I don't think they always love when they see us walk in the building because um, they know something's up. But Which is why I asked that question, by the way. Yeah, I think <laughs> sometimes my experience. That oh, they God, they're here. Love when they see, I love when I see the ombudsman because I'm an advocate, but the administration doesn't always love when they see the ombudsman. Right? I would agree with that. I wouldn't say it's an always love, but I think we've developed the program over the past number of years has really work to develop those relationships, to work on education, to provide education in a forward way where we're not just re responding to complaints, but we're ensuring that when people know better, they do better. And really making sure that they have the information that we have, how to provide that person-centered care, what those expectations are before we're there on a complaint. Yeah, I think that's very important. And um, just before we go to break, because I think some people are concerned, uh, you kind of touched on what I was thinking when you said you go to the person and ask them if they want to report the complaint. I think some people are concerned that there will be repercussions if a complaint is filed, even if it's by the ombudsman, uh, as opposed to contacting, let's say, the, the Department of Health for that particular state. I, I've, I've seen that. People are very concerned about that. And, and do you think that that affects um, people being willing to have their situation reported or investigated further? Absolutely, yes. So fear of retaliation, right, is something that people, and we fear that in all aspects of our life. It's not just long-term care. And it's not because someone may be experienced retaliation. It's because there is a power shift, right? The institution has a level of power over the person just because of how they provide care, right? right. I, maybe I need you to give me water. Maybe I need you to go to the bathroom. And even if you do that every time, I might be worried that at some time that might stop and I don't have control over my destiny in that way anymore. And that power shift causes some of that dynamic. And that's what we really work with residents about their rights, um, maybe addressing small issues and having success in that and seeing that the home is going to support them in you know, making that change and addressing those concerns and they're not gonna experience retaliation. And then every time you have those successes, it builds that trust, that transparency, and it starts to engage that relationship where once you have that relationship built, they'll talk about things um, that are maybe impacting them at higher levels. We also have a training on our website, website called Voices Speak Out. And about well, maybe 10 years ago, maybe more than that now, we worked on a training with residents. There is one for residents, one for family members, and one for staff um, about this topic about retaliation and what it means. And we actually engaged residents in long-term care to talk about the fear of retaliation, why they have it, what it feels like, and what people can do to help support them through those challenges. Mm. That sounds terrific. So I guess we will take a, a break at this point and we'll be right back with Maraid. I said it right this time, right? Maraid Painter, uh, talking about long-term care and as the state ombudsman, it's, it's 
I mean, Maraid has so much to offer. So I can't wait to come back and we can continue this conversation on Senior Straight Talk. Phyllis Amon, owner of Phyllis Amon Associates, provides strategic solutions to families seeking care for their loved ones and coaches them to become more effective advocates. Her expertise comes from working in over 45 nursing homes. Phyllis, known for her passion, empathy, high-quality care standards, and quality life for older adults, is an experienced educator, speaker, and trainer. She's bridged the gap from healthcare to public and private sector businesses on topics from communication, caregiving, empathy, and novel approaches to team building and leadership. All of Community Services is a 501c3 that provides culturally appropriate services to seniors, their family, and the community. Through their interactive programs, Olive engages participants physically and mentally with a focus on building strength, mobility, and mental health. To learn more, get involved, or make a donation, visit olivecs.org. Together, let's live, learn, and thrive. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com You are tuned in to Senior Straight Talk with Phyllis Heyman. If you'd like to leave us a question or comment about our program, please feel free to email the host at phyllis at seniorstraighttalk.com. Now, back to Senior Straight Talk. Welcome back to Senior Straight Talk. I'm here with Maraid Painter, the long-term care ombudsman for the state of Connecticut. We're having a phenomenal conversation about nursing homes, long-term care, um, what the ombudsman program is. And so now that we're back, um, Marae, maybe you want to talk about what your role is as the long-term care ombudsman. And uh, then we could go from there. I'm, I'm interested in people hearing what residents' rights are all about and, and what their rights actually are. So my role as the state long-term care ombudsman, so we have regional ombudsmen that go into nursing homes and answer the complaints and, and follow up with individuals. And then I am at the state office as the state long-term care ombudsman. And my role is to get feedback from the regional ombudsman, to talk to our executive board of presidents of resident councils. Those are residents that help inform me about my legislative process. And I ensure that the resident's voice is heard at a state and federal level. And that if there needs to be change in policy, regulations, um, just making sure that our elected officials and the heads of our state departments understand how decisions that they're making or have made might impact residents. And that's been very important during this period of time of COVID where residents have kind of felt like their voice wasn't heard. And there were a lot of decisions being made at a federal level, which then impacted the state like on visitation um, being done to them and not with them. And they really feel that they and the family councils, right, residents and family councils um, needed to have a voice in that. And that directly speaks to residents' rights. So my job is to protect residents' rights at a federal and state level. These rights are protected under something called the Older Americans Act. Right. 
and they're defined in the, in the Older Americans Act. It's very clear. Um, residents have the right to be a part of their care, to see their medical records, right? Nothing should be written about a resident that they don't have access to. Um, residents have the right to dignity, privacy, right? To not have someone just go through their items in their room. They can't just have room searches, right? That's right. their private space. No one comes in my house and searches for things. Correct. There's a process that's supposed to take place. So it's, it's our job to inform residents of those rights. I think many people think when they go to a nursing home, they get the handbook and that they have to do everything they're told by the nursing right. home. They think they lose their rights. You know, you don't lose any of your rights as a U.S. citizen when you go to a nursing home. You're still part of the community at large. You have to get your mail. You have to get your mail unopened. You, you know, it's interesting you say that. I can't tell you how many people I asked when I was in a nursing home if anybody offered them the opportunity to vote in the election. Well, I would hope so, because that was something we worked, our well, building here, we chased that down. That I'm, I'm licensed in New York State, so I can't okay. speak about Connecticut, but I can tell you, and these, I mean, these, many of them were quite alert people and watch the news in their room all the time. Yeah. And these people were told, that uh, nobody offered them the opportunity to vote. Oh, that, that's heartbreaking to it's me. Criminal. They're, it, they're it's criminal. They're United States citizens, no matter where they live. And, right. and they have the right to vote. Um, I want to give credit to um, the social workers and the rec directors in our homes here in Connecticut. I became concerned when we had COVID recovery homes. And during that period of time, people were transferring from one nursing home to another as part of that process. And so we met with them and said, hey, if someone transfers out of your nursing home to another nursing home and has not voted yet, you need to find out one, are they, how are they voting? Two, give them that choice and figure out how it's happening. And we asked that they meet with every single one of those individuals who transferred to ensure that their voting rights were protected. Um, That's terrific. Like I said, in this particular nursing home, there were many people who watched the news all the time. I could have a conversation with them yeah. about the news and nobody offered them the opportunity to vote. I thought it was really, well, I, when I use the word criminal, I, I don't mean criminal as in a criminal act, but I thought it was really a terrible. That it, it undermines that idea that we're still seen as whole and intact. And, and that we, that we're part of this community and that we're part of this society. And I think that's the whole issue with people in nursing homes, that unfortunately it's almost become like you're over there, you're mm -hmm. in that place, and you're no longer a part of society. And right. that's not the case. Those people there, right? We put those people there, and right. that's what we wanna get away from. We don't put people places. People choose where they receive their long-term services and supports. Um, this has been something that I've been working on um, a few years, I think two years ago now, our executive board of presidents of resident council brought to my attention that in some communities, individuals who live in the nursing home can't take the dial ride to the senior center because they're not seen as part of the community and the senior center is for older adults in the community. So we're like, no, 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 no. The senior centers were okay with it. Most of them, you know, as long as a person can go there and be fairly independent and not need a lot of their support, otherwise they'd have to bring someone with them. But it was getting that transportation piece understood. 
that these are individuals who also live in that community and should benefit from all of the supports in that community. It's the way, it's restructuring the way we think about community members and honoring individuals who have lived in our community for long periods of time, or if they're new to our community, that these adults, they're adults that can make decisions, even if they're decisions we are not comfortable with. And there's um, supported decision-making and um, honoring risk, right? The dignity, there's actually a lot of information about the, the dignity of risk out there and how it is a doctor, nurses, nursing homes, obligation to give the resident their best medical professional advice. It is the resident's right to take that advice or not. Right. Correct. To take medication or not. Correct. Which is no different than in society. You go to a doctor. I mean, I I have friends. Um, You go to a doctor and they prescribe something and the person says, oh, I didn't really want to fill that prescription or I took a few and I stopped taking it. You can't make a person do something. That's their choice. And it's the same thing in a nursing home. Nobody can require you to do anything now. And it may not be in your best interest and it may not be a sound decision. Nevertheless, it is your decision because you're a person who is entitled to make your own decisions your body, right? You have control over that. I joke when I do community presentations, I joke sometimes that I always hope my doctor's not listening. But um, (laughs) if I'm on an antibiotic and I choose, maybe it says, you know, don't take with alcohol. Well, I may still have a glass of wine or two and I may not finish every pill in that bottle. Both maybe not good decisions, but because I live in the community at large, because people see me as um, someone able and capable, and they determine that by looking at me. Correct. They write that off and say, ah, she's, that's her decision. For some reason, as people age, when we look at them, we place a judgment on them saying, oh, well, they maybe aren't making the best decision for them. We don't look back at, maybe they've made that same decision since they were my age. Correct. And it's a pattern in, in care. And we dis- we're dismissive of that instead of asking the person, what is the best way to meet your need in this? I think that goes to the whole issue of ageism, of mm-hmm. seeing people who are older in a certain way, seeing them as less capable, as um, less than a, a person who is able to make decisions. And like you just said, this person may have been making this kind of decision their entire life. And I have met many people in nursing homes who have said to me, if only I had taken my blood pressure medication, but that was their choice. They chose not to do that. And whatever happened as a result uh, happened as a result. Um, You know, I could tell a story about my own father right before he died. He didn't, the doctor actually, I mean, and my father died when I was 17. That's quite a number of years ago. And he went to, uh, he had gone on a trip with my mother that he always wanted to go to California. This is many, many, many years ago. And um, they went. He had had a mild heart attack uh, several months before, but very, very mild. And he went to the doctor. And the doctor said, you should have asked me if you could go, because I would have told you no. And he threw him out of his office. Said, don't ever come back again. Now, of course, this is many, many years ago, and my father happened to die that night, which is not great. Oh. But, but that's another oh. issue. But he, 
that was his choice. He wasn't going to listen to anybody. That was the point, right? Yeah. That's, and, that's who he was. Right, and that is his right. And it's the right of, it's quality versus quantity. Some people say, whatever you need to do, I'll do everything. I want to live as long as possible. Other people say, I'm going to take these risks. I'm going to make these choices. And I want this quality of life at this time, knowing that it may impact my length of life. And so I think that's important. We can't put our own stuff, right? We can't take our stuff and make it their stuff. I agree. Um, and that's, and I want to, while we're on this point, what I, I really want to speak to, because I think this, this point is missed many times for individuals who are living with, dealing with, supporting a diagnosis related to mental health. Um, I feel that many times our long-term care communities are biased related to mental health, where if you have a resident who, I'm going to use the example of cancer, um, comes into a nursing home after learning that they have cancer and the nursing home works with them and they are their cheerleaders and they get them back to the community and they find success and they're home for let's say six or nine months and the cancer comes back and they have to come back to the nursing home and be resupported and then make it home again. We all cheerlead that, right? We're clapping our hands. We're saying, yay, rah, rah. If you have someone that is dealing with and having support for a mental health issue. And they need to be in the nursing home and receive that support and that um, wellness. And they make it home. And they're home six to nine months. And the mental health concern resurfaces and they go back in the hospital, they come back to the nursing home. We often hear, we gave you a chance, you weren't successful. And so now you need to stay long-term. Both are medical conditions, substance abuse, mental health, other related concerns. We need to stop being biased against them and see them as medical conditions that need and deserve the same level of support and cheerleading, no matter how many times a person needs to recover from that illness. Um, That's something myself, my office, we've been working towards an education and it's really a mind shift for long-term care communities and to move them away from those bias for those individuals and allow them the best quality of life as they see as appropriate. Right. I think that um, too many times, like you say, they're in, in terms of that and informed choice, people are not um, giving people the opportunity to make some of those informed choices once they come back into the nursing home. It's just kind of what we said about older people. It doesn't have to be an older person. There are many, uh, you know, when I first started working in nursing homes, I don't want to say how many years ago, but um, my kids always used to think that the only people that worked in nursing homes were quote unquote old people, whatever that is, whatever that was to them. Yep. Um, And the only people that were in nursing homes were quote unquote old people. Now, I think that's changed over the years. The nursing home population, the nursing home population does have a greater number of older people in their advanced years, also because we're living to advanced years. But also there are a number of people, there are a number of people in nursing homes that are quite younger than that in their 40s, in their 50s. And many of those people do not need to be in a nursing home. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how many of those people have been given the opportunity to make the choice. 
Well, you know, we, and I'm sure you've heard this. How many times have you heard, oh, they need 24-7 care now. Oh, yes. Well, <laughs> right. 20, what, what does 24-7 care mean? Nursing homes do not provide 24-7 care. No, they do not. People they think provide, they do. Right. right. They right. provide 24-7 emergency response capability. I will tell you, we have many residents that have incidents that happen, especially overnight, where you have one or two staff members on, and it takes a long time for them to be found. Um, Absolutely. It is not because of a lack of care. Um, it is the fact that they're responding to an emergency. Um, I often hear family members say, well, they can't live at home again. They're going to fall. You show me one resident that's fallen at home who never fell again in a nursing home. Right, right. It doesn't happen. Once you fall once, no matter where you are, the odds of you falling again greatly increase with every fall. You know, I, I want to say this about falls. I was just telling uh, this to some people yesterday because I'm covering in a nursing home that um, many people in this particular place are dehydrated. Well, I've seen this many times over the years. And I was explaining to this person, a professional in a discipline, I don't want to say which, you know, this person was much younger than myself by decades, we'll say, that uh, dehydration contributes to falls. Mm -hmm. Um, and they didn't know what I meant by that or why that would be. Of course, I went on to explain that. But mo many people in nursing homes aren't receiving adequate hydration. It's one of the favorite questions I tell family members to ask when they're visiting a nursing home. One of my favorite questions to, for them to ask is, how much hydration is my loved one going to get every day? Mm -hmm. Like in ounces, um, that, that will, people will go back on their heels. They won't know how to answer that question. And the reason is, and there are many reasons why people aren't adequately hydrated. I don't want to get into that. But the reality is that people aren't adequately hydrated and hydration, dehydration leads to falls and confusion and a variety of things. Right. And for every fall. So what we would do in a case like that, we might ask, um, you know, we would counsel the resident, talk to the family if the resident gave us permission, and we would say, you've had frequent falls. What if, so for every fall, the nursing home was supposed to put a meaningful intervention in place. Correct. What have the interventions been? How soon were they put in place? When was the fall assessed? A fall should be assessed as soon as it happens, and then that should be looked at, right? What were, what, did they ask for labs? What was the person, you'll hear the words I and O. Right. Um, you can ask for an INO, an, in, an intake and output to be right. tracked around um, the time period and, and looking at that. So our team members might ask for things like that and say, well, the person's historically falling around 10 p.m. Well, there was a medication change and they get this med at seven now and they always got up to go to the bathroom one more time at night at 10, but because of this medication change, it has impacted their ability to independently ambulate to the bathroom at that time. Would the doctor reconsider the time of that medication because it's having a negative impact? So right. those are the kinds of conversations that we have where families or residents might not know to look at a situation in that way. They may tell us yes or no, but we would help provide them with that information to talk with the nursing home, to talk with the physician, to see if that's a strategy that might work for that individual. And it might or it might not, they might still fall, but then you look for another strategy. Right, but the interesting thing about what you just said is that families have to be informed when a person falls, when there's any change, they have to be informed, but they would not know to ask those questions. 
Necessarily. They just accept what the nursing home tells them. Oh, your loved one fell, blah, 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 whatever it is. I mean, that's, it's such an unfortunate situation that people really need to understand what their rights are. They really need to understand that they could ask a lot of questions. Um, that, that not only is their right, it's important for them to, to ask a lot of questions and for, to hold the nursing home accountable. For- well, it's how you are a true partner in your care, right? Yeah. Being, sitting back and letting them do everything for your care is an act of participation for both the resident and the family members. But many people don't, like you're saying, don't know what to ask, don't know about care plan meetings. I learned more of that during COVID than any other time in my career. I've been doing this now for well over 20 years, almost 25. And what I've learned is that it's about that access to information. Um, When COVID started, I learned very quickly, I had no way to reach my residents anymore. My team couldn't reach the residents. We couldn't educate people who were new in care. So we went to a format um, and anyone joining us, please check out our Facebook page. So on Facebook, since April of last year, in April, I was doing it three nights a week. I now do it one night a week at 530 on Wednesdays, where we've been talking about COVID, but it is a live information question answer session on Facebook with me and other professionals. Sometimes I bring on guests kind of like this um, and we answer questions. Uh, Family members and residents through our Mathematica report that was ordered by our governor said that it was the first time they had access to independent information in a way that was um, accessible to them, right? They could just jump on a computer. They didn't have to come meet me somewhere. They didn't have to go to a talk. They could just get on a computer. And so they've asked for our program to continue these education sessions moving forward, which we will be doing, and they will be on educating people regarding their rights. So one might be on care planning, one might be on um, end of life decisions, right? DNR, what is your code status? How do you make those decisions? How do you have those conversations? And we'll be continuing those right now. They're on Wednesdays at 5.30, every Wednesday. I think we'll be going to bi-weekly or maybe monthly, but I'm gonna get feedback from residents and family members on what they see as important. Um, you know, Having legal services join me, talking about what paperwork you should sign and the admission process or discharges and discharge planning. So we will be moving forward with these education series. They are on YouTube for people who don't have Facebook or they're on our Facebook page. And they're there historically, if there's questions that you have, um, you might wanna watch them to get answers to. So how would people access that? Uh, if you, is there a, uh... Uh, URL or that you could give people for or what your Facebook page is, how could they access that or what the YouTube channel is? Yep, you just go to Facebook and you put in the Connecticut Long-Term Care Ombudsman Program and it'll come up. Um, and then on YouTube, I think if you search for the Connecticut Long-Term Care Ombudsman Program, they will come up there as well. Awesome. There's a connection on our website as well. Um, also on our website is an advocacy corner. If you go to our advocacy corner, it talks about all of the current legislation we're working on. And because of COVID, we've had the opportunity to have people directly testify themselves. I don't have to represent every voice, right? Because we can testify virtually, which we're hoping moves forward in the future as an accommodation. Um, So we 
are putting up the bills, we're tying people in and linking them. They can go click on it, read the bill, see how to sign up, see how to testify or how to submit it in writing um, or how to work with the recreation director to be supported in writing testimony and submitting it through the resident council. Um, that's new to us. Again, that's all on our advocacy um, portal on our webpage. But if people have questions, they can easily just call or ask us and we can connect them to that. Oh, that sounds fantastic. Interesting that you said about testifying. I mean, there's so much. And before we started this, this uh, conversation, um, you know, I brought up that there's so much that needs to be done. And there's public policy and there's research and, and all of that stuff is fine. But the, the nursing home resident experience um, is not going to change necessarily, in my opinion, based on public policy and advocacy. It's based on kind of what you're just saying, where people can understand what their rights are and speak out about the situations that they're encountering either as a resident or as a family member um, for, for things to change. So I was telling you that countless times through the years, and especially in the past week that I've been in this one place, I see it's such a simple thing, but it's huge. Um, a call bell intentionally placed in a, in a way that's inaccessible to a resident. Um, public policy is not going to change that. Research is not going to change that. Think that's going to change by people speaking out, by people telling what their experience is, by people saying that this has to change, that the culture of the, the nursing home environment has to change. Maybe they need more staffing. Maybe, you know, th this will be impacted from many different directions in, in, in order for that to change. What do you think about that? I totally agree. I think it needs to be grassroots and I think it also needs to be in partnership. Um, there are some, and you know, these words are triggers for people when I say abuse, neglect, but when I'm talking about abuse and neglect in a nursing home, we're talking about the prevention of and that's often seen as something where um, administration does something top down in the way of education. And I don't believe in that. I believe there should be an abuse neglect partnership with the resident council where residents are talking directly with staff about how those things, I'll use the call bell example, how something like that feels to them, right? Right. Go back and when I talk to staff, think that it was your loved one in that bed. How does that feel? Now, their intent is not to abuse. Their intent isn't to neglect. Sometimes it's not thinking. It's not stopping after you make the bed to take it off the, usually it's on, they clip it to the curtain a lot, right? right. Making the bed and they never, they're rushing. They're going fast. They're working super lean. The intention wasn't to neglect. The result is neglect. The being mindful, the being purposeful, stopping, taking that down, having the time, respecting the staff member, giving them the dignity to work in a way in partnership with the residents. But when you open up that dialogue for them about how that felt, I will tell you a resident telling a staff member how it felt when they were left in their room, um, an individual who may have experienced a stroke and couldn't reach that call bell or due to their aphasia couldn't express the distress they were feeling in that moment fast enough before the staff member left and then it was hours before someone came back, two hours to check them. 
when they're given the time and they can express that to a staff person, a care team member, that care team member never forgets that again. I agree. But if I just told them that in a training and said, you need to do this because it equals good care, it rushes out with their day. When you put the person, when you personalize it, when you show the impact, that care team member um, takes that in. It resonates with them. They're there for a reason. They're not working in a nursing home because they're, you know, they have nothing better to do. They care about people. It's about how fast their day moves and it crushes them. I will tell you, I've had staff leave sobbing because it was never their intention. It's a bad outcome. Correct. And we have bad outcomes happen. Uh, I agree with you. I, I don't think anybody does it intentionally or maliciously for the, most, for the most part. I'll say for the most I part. Would, I would agree with that. For the most part. But, but uh, as you say, the, intention, the, the outcome is the same, whether it was done intentionally or not intentionally. The person doesn't have access to call somebody if they need them. Right. Yes. So, I mean, this has just been fantastic, Maraid. Uh, I, I really appreciate the conversation. If there's anything you want to just tell our listeners in terms of contact information before we go, uh, this would, that would be great. I'm sure people want to know how to access the information about the Connecticut Long-Term Care Ombudsman. If there's anything you could tell them about the Ombudsman program in general, uh, in terms of contact information, that would be great. All right. One thing I would say is just call. No question is a bad question. We do information consults, so it doesn't have to be a case. You don't even have to tell us the nursing home. Sometimes we can just get you information. Um, and then we'll build a relationship with you. Our number is 1-866-388-1888. And that's a toll-free number, so people can always reach out to us. They can also email us at ltcop at ct.gov. Um, and again, we have our Facebook page. Those are the easiest ways to reach us. Um, it sometimes can take, we are not there in the evenings and um, weekends. So if it's an emergency, call 911 or 211. Um, but otherwise, we will get back to you as soon as possible. Okay, well, thanks so much, Maraid, for generously sharing your time today on Senior Straight Talk, for all of your knowledge, the work that you do, and the invaluable inf information that you gave to our listeners. Please join us for our next episode on Senior Straight Talk for more informative conversations for the senior years of your lives. And please remember to like, click, and share our episodes. And until next time, stay safe, stay well, and stay tuned. Thank you for listening to Senior Straight Talk. Join your host, Phyllis Amon, again soon for another episode on the Voice America Empowerment Channel or your favorite podcast platforms.